Hi and welcome to Greetings from Brussels, episode 16. I'm Morgan and I'm excited to be your host for our first ever UK specific episode. And because we're talking all things UK, that means we're going to be joined by our UK membership and engagement manager, Stephen Tulip. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Hello everyone, I'm excited to be here. And as always, I'm joined by Anna and Niels from our EU team. Hi Anna. Hello. And hi Niels. Hey everyone. So in this episode, we're talking about the fourth industrial revolution, sometimes also called Industry 4.0 or 4IR, whatever you want to call it. Um, most businesses are currently going undergoing somewhat of a revolution as they invest in technologies and enable the physical assets to be controlled and monitored by software and for the employees to be better connected than ever. Since we know that our members are a clever bunch, it's time to dive into how they're using new, uh, new technologies to make innovative products. But first, a bit of tech history and the top tech headlines from Europe. Since we're talking about the fourth industrial revolution in this episode, let's explore the first three for today, in, for today's tech history. So. As you may have learned in primary school, industrial revolutions are periods when new technology facilitates significant changes in the way businesses operate, and they are known to have a profound impact on society by reshaping towns and cities and fundamentally altering the ways we work and the jobs we do. For example, um, the five-day work week is a product of the second industrial revolution. While the first two industrial revolutions yield the infrastructure needed for today's technology, like the creation and production of electricity, airplanes, and transcontinental communication, we didn't see the kind of modern technological innovations we know and love today until the mid-20th century. And this was the first industrial revolution. In the mid-20th century, the microprocessor, with its computers, changed the world forever. Programmable logic controllers, known as PLCs, and robots paved the way for high-tech automation, again increasing the speed, the volume, and accuracy at which companies could manufacture the products. Email and the internet made interconnected global supply chains possible, increasing efficiency and global market opportunity for businesses. And that brings us to today, the fourth industrial revolution. The meeting of the virtual and the physical characterizes Industry 4.0, powered by brand new technologies and unprecedented mobile connectivity, and we're still seeing its benefit unfold, but it is already allowing manufacturing businesses to be more flexible, efficient, and customer-focused than ever. Who knows what the fifth revolution will bring, but for now, that's all for Tech History. And now it's time for Brussels Bites. Anna, Niels and Stephen, what are the latest tech headlines that keeps us busy in the Brussels bubble and the UK? As we all know, security updates are crucial for smartphones. According to recent news reports, the German government is urging the European Union to mandate operating system providers to offer smartphone security updates for at least seven years after purchase of a device. That's two years longer than a recent European Commission draft. The EU's proposal, which also addresses spare parts, is meant to help the environment by letting users keep phones for longer. Currently, most Android smartphones are eligible for two to three years of security updates, while Apple offers them for five to six years. If approved, the EU proposal is supposed to enter into force by 2023. 
The world's largest semiconductor chip maker, Intel, announced it could invest as much as 80 billion euros in Europe over the next decade to boost the region's chip capacity. It will also open its semiconductor plant in Ireland to automakers. Speaking at the 2021 Munich International Motor Show, Intel CEO Pat Geltinger also said the company would announce the locations of two new European chip plants by the end of the year. For months now, chip shortages have plagued the car manufacturers. Nearly 100 automakers and suppliers, including BMW, Volkswagen and Daimler, have already expressed support for the Intel initiative. On Friday, U.S. District Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers announced her verdict on the court case between Epic Games and Apple. In the high-profile trial, Epic Games challenged the up to 30% cut Apple takes from in-app purchases. While Apple can no longer prohibit developers from linking to their own payment mechanisms, the judge kept in place the services and benefits our members rely on to compete on a global scale. Also, the ruling does not require Apple to allow the sideloading of potentially fraudulent or harmful software. The App Association released a statement on this decision, noting its importance for developers. You can find the link to it in the show notes. The next stop of our AppMakers tour for Europe will be Italy. On the 4th of October, we'll be joined by policymakers and app developers to continue our discussions about the ongoing platform regulation effort in the EU. You can sign up directly via the link in the show notes and check out the recordings and recaps of all our previous events on the AppMakers Tour website. Also, already mark your calendars for 13th of October when we virtually visit Spain. Yeah, looking forward to that. And Stephen, what's the latest from the UK? The UK's Information Commissioner, Elizabeth Dennon, has asked her counterparts in the G7 nations to join forces against cookie pop-ups online. Internet users and businesses widely dislike pop-ups, seeing them as an annoying obstacle. Privacy advocates also believe that the so-called dark patterns trick people into accepting privacy invasions rather than reading through the pages and settings of every website they visit. Any coordinated solution will probably take some time to materialise because developing new internet standards is usually a long and formal process. Until then, the national rules apply. And that's all for Brussels Bytes. As we mentioned earlier, we're being joined by our UK membership engagement manager, Stephen Tulp. Stephen, before we discuss the latest happenings in the UK, can you first tell us, well, tell our listeners a bit more about you and the work that you've been doing here at the App Association? Yeah, sure. So ACT's recently launched in the UK, and as mentioned earlier, I'm engaging with our members on a range of topics. And we're growing quite quickly in the UK, I'm pleased to say. It's been great to talk to businesses all around the country about the technologies they're using and the challenges they are facing. And there's lots of different technologies at play here, things like artificial intelligence, big data, automation, cloud computing, to, to name just a few. The incredible advances that these technologies bring into industry are underpinned by the Internet of Things, which allows data to be passed from machine to software and back again in an instant. And we're also regularly joining events and business networks in the UK to get the word out there about ACT and the challenges that our members face, and of course to grow our network. One of the things we often talk about are patent issues, especially when they're part of technical standards, or so-called standard essential patents. In the UK, I'm looking out for those SME innovative businesses 
that use standard technologies in their products to try and raise awareness on some of the risks that are attached to it. Great, and for our discussion today, uh, I'm handing it over to you, Stephen. Uh, he's also joined by Luca Lugano Campambua from LoopCycle to discuss how they see new technology trends impacting their own business and how they benefit um, the partners, clients, companies they work with. Thanks for that introduction, Morgan. I'm turning it right over to you, Lugano, for you to introduce your company. Um, right, so LoopCycle is a product traceability platform. What we allow is for manufacturers and end users to connect with each other where manufacturers typically don't know who their end users are. And this is because there may be intermediaries within that value chain that take that relationship from the manufacturer um, with the end user. So and basically we allow that to happen by enabling a unique product identity code called a cycle code that is produced with every single product when the product reaches the end user that is activated using a smart device and that creates a direct relationship between the manufacturer and the end user what this allows is it makes it easier for manufacturers to recover those products at the end of life but also it allows the manufacturer to interact with the end user over the course of that product's life which improves the second life value of that product if it is then sold to another end user an example of this would be in the commercial kitchen sector, where we, where we do most of our work, where kitchen equipment, high-value kitchen equipment, is sold through a distributor or a dealer. It reaches the end user, but the manufacturer often doesn't know who that end user actually is. As a result of that, it makes it hard for the manufacturer to be involved in the maintenance and servicing of that product over its lifetime. But when that product is no longer needed by that particular end user, it, the manufacturer can't um, be involved in the secondary value in the secondary sale of that product or recover that product back to recycle within their supply chain at the end of life. So that's an example where our technology comes in very useful to allow those interactions to happen. Thanks, that sounds really interesting. So what does your software look like for your customers and what are some of the things that they use it for? Our software is a uh, reactive web-based platform. So essentially you can access it through a desktop device or a smartphone. Our intention is to build a smartphone application within the next 18 months as our platform develops. And that will become really important as we move from B2B to B2C. A big part of our platform is the is the automation aspect. Um, our, AP, our platform API is designed to interface with other ERP and CRM software to extract the right product data to populate the platform. This is absolutely essential. And the only way you can achieve industrial scale is to remove as much human uh, human-centric processes as possible. So by being able to interact and pull data directly from CRM systems or ERP software, and um, we're able to take that information and populate the platform very quickly. Furthermore, we have a visual dashboard that can be configured to produce certain reports at certain points in time. Really, our goal is to put in place a process that is as efficient and as least reliant on human beings actually coming in and entering soft information manually as much as possible. Of course, this cannot be avoided, but, uh, but we believe we can really reduce this burden by automating processes and systems within the platform as much as we can. So there's a real possibility. 
Talking about automation technologies, what technologies do you currently use that are important for your business? The really interesting uh, product uh, technologies are around connectivity and Internet of Things. Now, this has been around for uh, for a while, but in the sectors, particularly things like commercial kitchens, it's now being used as a means for uh, data to be gathered on real-time performance of this equipment. Now, if you can imagine tying up that equipment, that um, that data, with a product traceability platform, you can then build a profile on how a product is being used through every single stage in its life cycle. What that allows to happen is you can then use that data over the lifetime of the product to help manufacturers um, make better decisions around the design of those products. If they know, for example, that a product after three years is going to need certain servicing and certain parts replaced, or if you know that the energy of a pro the energy profile of a product is going to decrease over time, then actually what you can do is make sure that you as a manufacturer have the right safeguards in place at certain points in the life cycle of that product to offer new services that will either extend that life or improve the circularity of that product. So really that's a big part of that Internet of Things and, and a big driver behind that is this idea of connectivity. And connectivity is not just in terms of connection to the Internet, but connectivity of data between different actors within, uh, within this supply chain. And by doing that, you can allow all of these parties to be speaking the same language at the same point, and therefore better decisions are made across the whole life of the And one last question to wrap up. What are some of the emerging trends and technologies that you're looking at? Um, right. I think the most significant emerging trend um, is something that isn't necessarily new. It's been used actually in a number of different sectors, but it's this idea of image recognition. Um, you know, one of the biggest barriers that we've uh, that we've thought about and how what we've overcome with developing loop cycle is this idea that as soon as you get a human being involved in the entering of a product, um, you then take time and resource uh, into question. And if you have thousands of products out there. Um, it's going to take a lot of man hours to actually create, uh, uh, to actually register these products at scale. Through image recognition by the platform being able to understand that actually this is an oven hob or this is a refrigerator and we and it's this model and it's this age. What you, what you can allow is from a simple photograph or from a simple video image, a kit, an entire kitchen to be registered within the platform uh, within a matter of um, you know hours or moments. That is a lot better, and that will allow this technology to provide circular benefits at a much bigger scale than actually if you have to then rely on um, on somebody entering the uh, entering the data. And I think that's the most significant factor for us. It has been used in other sectors like fintech, for example, but not really to drive circular and um, circular outcomes, particularly in manufacturing sectors. It's worth pointing out that um, we've talked a lot about commercial kitchen equipment. The reason why is because um, this was a very good starting point for us. Unfortunately, COVID really affected this industry. So there was an immediate uh, injection into the market of a lot of commercial equipment um, that manufacturers were not aware of. However, Loop Cycle is designed for any situation where there is a B2B manufacturing uh, supply chain and that same dynamic exists between a manufacturer and an end user where an intermediary 
um, is involved and that visibility of the end user is actually lost. Um, our plans for the future are, are then to ex expand on that, to actually look, in, look at the B2C sector, because there are so many challenges with com consumer products. Um, for example, things like Nespresso that have high recyclability, but may not have um, the granularity around the systems to make sure that as much of that is collected and maximized as possible. So there's a real possibility for loop cycle to, to influence that and drive circularity in those sectors as well. Thanks a lot, Lou, for this interesting discussion around loop cycle and the IoT connectivity you use. It's certainly an interesting business. We'd now like to bring this back to some of the important policy discussions we've been seeing in the UK. That's right, and connectivity is the bread and butter of innovative companies like Loopcycle, but also an interest, uh, an interest area for, for policymakers. And Stephen, in your introduction, you mentioned standard essential patterns. Can you elaborate a bit on that and how it impacts a business that use Internet of Things? Yeah, sure. So standard essential patterns are the main thing we're focusing on in the UK at the minute. And the key thing to understand is that standard essential patterns are crucial to making pretty much any any product that connects to the internet. So it's not just things like smartphones and smart kettles, it applies equally to any physical asset that can be controlled or monitored wirelessly by software. So standard essential patents, or SEPs for short, are patents that are volunteered to be part of the standard technology. And standard technologies are things like 4G, 5G, and Wi-Fi, so you can see why they're important to connect to the internet. If a company wants to use one of those technologies, they have to license the patent and pay the corresponding licensing fee. And companies that make connected products use these technologies to connect their devices to the internet or to other machines and software. So these licenses are really essential to them. However, a single, a single standardized technology may consist of hundreds or even thousands of patented parts. There are, however, some issues with the way that these SEPs are licensed. So when um, SEP holders voluntarily contribute their patents to an industry standard, they commit to providing licenses on fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory terms, which is often shortened to brand. But this doesn't always happen. So yeah, you mentioned about the issues. So what are the, some of the concrete uh, effects that uh, not licensing on friend terms could have and could have on the businesses in the UK? Yeah, sure. So we've um, we've explained that if you want to make a product that connects to the internet, you have to use these standard essential patterns. And the situation is particularly difficult in the UK because of some of the court cases we've seen in the past year or so. So the courts can um, halt the manufacture or sale of a device that uses a patented technology that's under dispute. And there are cases when um, companies holding the standard essential patents use their power to effectively pick and choose who they license to rather than licensing to all, which doesn't sound very fair, reasonable or non-discriminatory to me. This is particularly troublesome for SMEs who often don't have the resources or expertise to fight these decisions in courts. And therefore, we're working with our members to inform them, the public and policymakers about these issues. So, yeah, thank you, Stephen. That's super interesting. That's all the time we have today. But thanks so much to you and Lugano to set out the technological and the legislative angles. Um, I'm sure we'll hear more about this in the coming months. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. 
Also, if you're looking to find out more about LoopCycle, um, check out the show notes for a membership spotlight from earlier this summer when LoopCycle joined the association or visit loopcycle.io. And if you'd like to find out more about becoming an ACT member in the UK, you can visit our shiny new UK website at actonline.org forward slash UK. That's great. Well, thank you so much. And now, well, it's time for random identifiers. Well, Stephen, since you're the guest, you're up first. The UK has gone a bit tennis mad this last week because of the fantastic results of Emma Raducanu winning the US Open. And my random identifier this week is all about a local link to where I live in Gloucestershire in the UK to international tennis. So when you think about tennis, you think of Wimbledon, strawberries and cream, and the, icon- and the iconic yellow balls that they play with. And the company around the corner from me called WSB Textiles manufactures, and this is the technical term, the yellow fuzzy stuff that goes onto the tennis balls. So whenever you're watching tennis on the TV or playing it um, down at your gym, the material that's on the ball was probably manufactured a couple of miles from where I am now. And actually, it's not just tennis balls, it's also the cloths that are used on snooker and pool. So next time you're playing one of these games, all of that, um, yeah, all of the cloth is made just around the corner from where I am. But that's pretty cool. I mean, we tend to forget that somebody actually produces that those fluff. The fizzy <laughs> the stuff, ball. yeah. The yellow fuzzy stuff. And it's, re- and it's really complicated as well. It's a really sort of high-tech fabric that, um, yeah, you don't think about until you, you see a factory making it. Yeah. Well, we'll think about you next time <laughs> that we'll watch Wimbledon. <laughs> so, Anna, what's your random identifier? Um, it's definitely not that interesting. It's just another TV show I watched this weekend. <laughs> um, but I'm still thinking about it, right? So, like, that's something. Um, and it's called um, it's called Al Rababi School for Girls. It's on Netflix, um, and it's written and produced by two um, Jordanian women, which I thought was cool already. Um, because I've never really watched much, like, Arab-produced TV, um, and it was phenomenal. So in, in six episodes, they tell the story of how one girl who's the outcast at the school plots the takedown of the classmates who bully her, um, and I see how maybe this sounds like a cheesy teen drama, which maybe that's what I was looking for when I was browsing Netflix, but the show actually touches on a lot of very serious issues, and I felt like it actually gave me a lot of perspective that I don't have, um, and I learned a lot from it. So that was a really cool watch. Um, also, all the actors were super young. They're all like fresh high school graduates, I think, and they're phenomenal. So overall, it was a very good weekend watch. Oh, but that's nice. Uh, what was the title again? It's called The Al Rawabi School for Girls. All right. Okay, that's definitely something I'm gonna add, add uh, to my uh, yeah. to my watch list uh, on Netflix. I have to catch up on a lot. Um, yeah, this yeah. this podcast is particularly useful for the tips on uh, what to watch next. <laughs> of course, <laughs> that's what we're here for. So yeah, Niels, you're up. Yeah. So my random identifier is what some argue the sole purpose of of the internet: cat videos. Um, <laughs> Normally not uh, yeah. really up my alley, but this one I found particularly cool. Uh, you may have seen it already, but it's an American football game in Miami where 
from some upper deck. This cat was hanging down, I think it was a flag, and it sort of fell down, and someone in the audience sort of caught it, and what I can only describe as a Simba moment sort of followed. So he held up the cat, and <laughs> the cat was like trying to get out of there. I found it particularly cute. Yeah, I didn't see it fully. I saw some cat stuff going on social media, and I didn't click on the thing, but yeah, it went pretty viral. Yeah, I'm not sure what is so attractive about it. Normally, I'm not that into cat videos, but this one I found particularly cute. It was also oh. cute because the people in the stadium were like super excited that the cat was like rescued. So yeah, it seemed yeah. like they were more into that than the football game. <laughs> and also, so some shocking headlines like cat survivors uh, survivors fall. I think if you wouldn't have caught it, it would probably have landed on its feet. But you know. Yeah, let's hope so. But yeah, so I, I think um, I think my cat might have been listening because as you were talking about that, she's just started climbing all over the desk. <laughs> there you go. So I'm going to talk about my uh, my own identifier. Well, I've, well, since we last talked, uh, I went to Greece for the holidays, and um, so I had time to catch up with my Greek mythology, and I um, went to visit the. Um, Epidor um, Amphitheater, uh, which is in the Peloponnese, and it's an ancient theater built in the 4th century uh, before Christ, and it has exceptional acoustics where you really, like, if you're in the, in the middle, you whisper, the person at the right at the top hears you perfectly. And well, what I want to highlight is that we were lucky when we arrived there for the visit, we saw, saw that there was the, a festival happening, the Athens Epidaurus Festival, and we had the opportunity to listen to a Greek tragedy, uh, Prometheus Unbound, yes, Prometheus Unbound, in an ancient amphitheater, and I thought that was an amazing experience, and I had to share it. So if you ever go to Athens, uh, it's not so far away, it's an hour away, more or less, and um, if you go during the summer, go to that festival. It's a, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful experience and a great way to spend your evenings. That That's sounds really great. cool. Yeah, especially because you didn't plan it and then just sort of arrived there. Yeah, that's the best part. We're just being tourists and then suddenly we see this huge festival with thousands of people going there. So yeah, it was, uh, it was really nice. And now we reach the end of our very first UK Focus edition um, of Greetings from Brussels. And this was episode 16 of our Global Text Form podcast. And if you're interested in learning more, head over to our website at active9.org slash where you'll find um, all our show notes. And we now have transcripts available, so you can find them at the top of our show notes as well as on podscribe.com. Just search TechSwamp. You can subscribe to TechSwamp on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher to get your latest episode first. And don't forget, rate and preview. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Bye.